0: Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, your boy on social media at MMALOTN and the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive where we have over 2,600 fighter profiles for you to dig into, research and study so you can provide the best breakdowns, predictions and analysis on the upcoming fights. This week alone, not only do we have the big UFC 295 card, but also KSW, KJW, and Fury Challenger Series goes down this weekend next week we got Aries FC LFA A1 combat and Bellator going down and then to close out the month we also have ACA and PFL championships so all of those fights and fighters will be on the MMA fight archive where you can ensure that you leave no stone unturned so you can go out there and do all the researching you need yourself to give the best breakdowns analysis and predictions for these upcoming events there is a seven day free trial available for you check the link in the description below give it a whirl for free before deciding and realizing that it is worth the bang for your buck all right we are going over UFC 295 this weekend, which is headlined by two title fights. Originally, it was supposed to be John Jones headlining and defending his heavyweight title against DP Miocic. Unfortunately, a pectoral muscle sprain, or tear if I'm not mistaken, uh, forced him out of the matchup. And now we have a replacement interim heavyweight title fight in the Coleman event between Tom Aspinall and sergey Spivak, who are clearly the next guys in line. And then headlining the card is the light heavyweight division, where We have Alex Pereira taking on former champion Yiri Prohaska to crown a new champion in this division, which which has been without a champion since Jamal Hill was forced to vacate the title after suffering a pretty serious injury that is going to cause him to be on the sidelines for an extended period of time. We got a bunch of other fine fights sprinkled out throughout the car, not to mention Jessica Andraj taking on Mackenzie Dern. We got Slava Claus in the house doing his damn thing as well. Uh, a bunch of other great fights on it. Uh, like I said, Matt Fervola against Benoit Saint-Denis should be a banger. We got two grappling aces in Diego Lopez and Pat Sabatini going at it as well uh, very excited for the card going down in New York at Madison Square Garden uh, you know one of these is their tent tentpole events in MSG for that November time uh, once again you guys can see that there is no video it is strictly an audio podcast uh, for the second week in a row uh, I am still out visiting the in-laws uh, and I forgot to bring my visual equipment but I do have my audio equipment so I wanted to ensure to still get this content out for you guys um, a reminder the uh the four segments that i dropped during the week are all going to drop on friday as one big segment obviously i'm trying to uh, maximize the amount of time that i'm able to hang out with the family and enjoy the time that we're out here while still providing you guys with as much information staying on top of the mma fight archive updates and still getting my studying done not for just the ufc but also the regional promotions that i cover as well so appreciate you guys bearing with me through this uh period i will be back in town Uh, next week so uh, next Tuesday which means that next week's podcast as well will be a strictly audio podcast but after that we should be back to regularly scheduled programming again appreciate you guys bearing with me all right let's get through the uh, quick uh, recaps from last weekend Uh, it was a pretty good night or a pretty good uh, run that we had there Uh, first off obviously the lock of the night play in Mark DA Casey comes through for us. We got him around that minus one ninety range. But when I broke down the fight for my Patreon folks, but also the people uh, listening to the podcast on Mondays, um, he guys got him closer to minus one thirty, minus one forty. And then as the week went on, we saw some more money come in on him. But exactly what I expected him to do Go out there, utilize his grappling And just thwart any type of offensive uh, Success that uh, Fernandez was Trying to garner, Uh, I don't know what That one judge was smoking that scored the fight For Fernandez, but luckily we didn't get robbed On the scorecards there, and DKC Ends up getting his hand raised Our dog of the night uh, Came through for us, and Angela Hill As she cashes as a plus 130 underdog Always good to cash Hill as an underdog And whenever you get an opportunity To bet her uh, against up-and-coming prospects you know her run since this COVID era is now I believe four and six but the four wins that she has are over solid uh, prospects like Lupita Godinez and Emily Ducati now add Denise Gomez to the list as well so very happy to hit that that brings our record now to 53 and 70 for the dog of the night predictions on the year that's a 43% hit rate again you're getting plus money on this which means we are in the positive positive. Um, and you guys will obviously figure that out or at least hear those numbers on the dog of the night segment that I'll drop at the end of the week. Uh I don't believe I touched on the lock of the night uh record here, but the DKCW brings us to 91 and 31 on the year for a 75% hit rate. So very happy with that. Still want to get to that 80% rate. Uh we got a couple events left throughout the year. I don't know if we'll be able to get to 80%, but still happy that we're in the positive there and got a good uh unit profit there as well, just telling strictly the lock of the night spots. Um Also, uh, if you're looking for Cage Warriors breakdowns for this weekend's card, I believe there are Uh, having an event down in London Uh, if you want breakdowns for that check out the Lock of the Night Patreon page link to that is in the description below I'll be dropping a written breakdown of every single matchup going in depth about every single fight giving you my best bet, best prediction, best prop and then the best hedge in case our prediction does not come through as well again you can find those in-depth breakdowns strictly on the Patreon page for Cage Warriors next week will be LFA Uh, check it out link in the description below and lastly Shout out to my guys over there at Godzilla Wins. Uh, drop in written breakdowns for those guys over there uh, to a public platform. Uh, check their website out. Not only for the UFC stuff, but also for uh, NFL, NBA, all other sports. They got you guys covered. Check them out. They're on the rise, and I'm uh, proudly representing their MMA front. Again on Wednesdays, we drop the main events uh, breakdown, and then on Thursdays, I drop a three best money line spot, which we actually ended up going three and zero one on this past weekend. Let's keep that momentum rolling this weekend all right i've been blabbering too much at the beginning of this podcast so let's not waste any more time and let's get right into the breakdowns for ufc 295 First fight up we got is going down in the featherweight division between Dennis Buzukia and Jamal Emmers. Now Dennis Buzukia finally made his long-awaited UFC debut on short notice last time around against Sean Woodson and that was a fight that he got completely swept on the scorecards. He had no answer for the long-distance striking game of Woodson and Buzukia was failing in terms of crashing the pocket effectively to get off his own offense and Woodson was able to just paint a picture on his face with solid jabs and combination striking just as he is able to do when he gets into his groove. That snapped a seven-fight winning streak that Bazukiya had which uh, originally started after he had lost to Melsik Bagdazarian on the Contenders series back in 2020. He had another opportunity on the contender series in 2022, but failed to secure a contract as he did not have a good enough performance to get his uh, ticket to the UFC. So he went out there, picked up another three wins. And then when the time came, Sean Woodson required four replacements to finally throw down uh, earlier this year. And the UFC was like, you know what, Dennis, let's go we know you've been waiting let's get you in here and even though bazooka missed weight he still managed to throw down and get his ufc debut and now here he is fighting this weekend in front of his home crowd with a full training camp ahead of him his opponent this weekend is 26 fight veteran jamal Emers, who's been exchanging wins and losses over his five fight uh, ufc career thus far he made his debut against giga Chikadze, where he came up short in a fight where he stro- uh, decided to strike with giga Chikadze for a little bit too long and then managed to bounce back with a big win over vince cashero where he was able to box him up over 15 minutes and win that fight pretty dominantly then his poor fight iq showed once again against pat sabatini where he decided to play footsies with a guy that is very skilled in the jiu-jitsu realm and he ended up paying for it he did return with a big win over hussein askabov in a fight that he was an underdog and handed Askabov his first professional loss in 24 professional fights and then unfortunately emers came back and fought against jack jenkins earlier this year where he ended up losing a split decision a fight that many people scored in his favor including myself and that just continued the bad luck for the 34 year old but Emers is a very skilled fighter who has a great skill set all around. I believe his grappling is the best part of his game, especially with his ability to have, uh, you know, stay a step ahead of his opponents in the scrambling realms, but also have great cardio to go a hard 15 if that's what's required. His speed and agility on the feet with his striking is why he is so effective in terms of hurting opponents on the feet. But I believe if he sharpens up the fight iq just a little bit he should be able to get his hand raised over most opponents and that's what i'm expecting him to do here against bazookia i've seen his number jump around over the last couple days minus 275 was the number that i saw when i started studying this fight i saw it down to about minus 225 earlier today and now it's back up to about minus 250 at the time of this recording and i believe that's pretty generous here for a guy like jamal emers who i believe has all the skill set advantages over Bazookia, with the exception of fight iq as long as emers goes out there and utilizes his i believe if he uses utilizes his grappling that will be the path of least resistance for him here and i expect him to go out there and outwork Bazookia over 15 minutes so that he can get his hand raised by decision but just got to be a little bit weary of that fight IQ. As long as he just sharpens that up and manages to go out there and utilize his strengths, he should be able to get his hand raised. Next up, we got a flyweight matchup between Joshua Van and Kevin Borjas. We'll start up on the uh, Joshua Van side, who had a successful short notice UFC debut earlier this year against Yalgas Zhumagulov. And luckily, Van was already preparing for a matchup on the Contender Series when he got the call to step in against Zumagulov. That night, he had a tough start in the first round, but managed to really get it going in the second two rounds with the striking and his ability to put volume on Zumagulov, utilizing his speed, footwork and uh, combination striking to touch up the unsuspecting Zumagulov, who was unable to get a beat on the striking and even get his own grappling going. Joshua Vance's only professional loss came at the hands of a heavy wrestler who was able to get him to the mat and control him and eventually finish him in the second round. But I have seen massive and marked improvements from Joshua Vance since that fight with his takedown defense, with his submission ability off of his back and his ability to get back to his feet so that he can go back to pretty much where he usually has his advantage which is in the striking realm. This 22-year-old is a very hot prospect and I'm very intrigued to see him as he continues to work through the UFC roster. His opponent this weekend is 25-year-old Kevin Borjas, who's making his UFC debut after earning his contract on Week 1 of the Contender Series earlier this year. He was fighting a grapple-heavy opponent last time around, who looked to take him to the ground and kind of subdue him on the mat. But Borjas did a great job in terms of making him work in the second and third rounds, utilizing his takedown defense, but also his ability to dish out damage while his opponent was shooting for desperation takedowns, which inevitably allowed Borjas to get his hand raised. Borjas was a plus 300 underdog in that fight and showcased that he had the dog in him when he was able to stop those takedowns and get his damage off and then like I said one winning that fight by decision but I believe he's going to be at a huge technical striking disadvantage here against Joshua Van who will be too slick and too fast for him on the feet and even if Borjas looks to take this fight to the ground I don't think he has the rushing chops or jiu-jitsu chops to take advantage of Van in that realm. I think that Borjas has faced some very poor competition on the regional scene and that win over Victor Diaz is likely the biggest one of his career thus far and I feel like there is just too big of a step up here and too big of a discrepancy in terms of the skills here in the uh, striking realm that will allow Van to run away with this fight. I like Van here and I wouldn't even be surprised if Van ends up finding a finish later on in this matchup. Next up, we got a bantamweight matchup here between veterans John Castaneda with a twenty and six record as he takes on Kyung Ho Kong, who comes in with a nineteen and nine record. Now we'll start off on the Castaneda side, who's coming off a pretty dominant victory over Muin Gafarov last time around. Although he dropped the second round, Gafarov was forced or uh, deducted a point due to uh, not accidental. I'd say they're more so. Um, intentional headbutts, uh, which caused some damage on Castaneda, but luckily Castaneda was able to rally back in the third round and win that third round to get his hand raised by decision. I've started to find out that if you're able to have a solid striking advantage and can push the pace against a guy like Castaneda, just as Daniel Santos did, and just as Gafarov was able to do in the second round against Castaneda, that's where you're able to get the better of a fighter like him. But more often than not, he has the striking advantage and the grappling chops to go out there and put his. Opponents through the ringer, from the striking to the grappling, to get his hand raised more often than not. He has some solid wins on his record, like Eddie Wineland and Miles Johnson, most recently Gafarov. But I don't know if he has what it takes to really crack into the top ten of this talent-filled d- bantamweight division. He'll be facing a very tough out this time around against Korean fighter Kyung Ho Kong, who at 36 years old finds himself on a two-fight winning streak. He's had two separate three fight winning streaks in the UFC, and he's he's looking to replicate that once again with a win this weekend. But I just don't know if he has what it takes to overcome a guy like Castaneda, who might have all the advantages in this matchup. Kong used to be a fighter that I would rely on as a lock of the night prediction over guys like um, uh, Pyongyang, Liu I might be absolutely butchering his name, I apologize, Brandon Davis, and even earlier on in his career because of his ability to strike and control that pace, but also get fights to the ground and utilize a slick jujitsu game to pull off submissions or garner a lot of control time and grind his opponents out but i think as he starts to age here it's starting it's going to start to get harder for him to overcome the younger fighters in this bantamweight division and i feel like he's going to be at a bit of a disadvantage in terms of the pressure that Castaneda will be putting on him, but also the inability to be- get the fight to the ground where he could possibly use his BJJ advantage. But I expect Castaneda to dictate the pace here, he utilizes crisp boxing combinations to really hurt Kong throughout this matchup, and I think he ends up grinding this fight out by mixing his striking and grappling together and really overwhelming Kyung Ho Kong. Next up, we got another light hit or lightweight matchup here between Jared Flash Gordon going up against Mark Madsen, starting off on the Jared Gordon side, who's had a bit of a roller coaster run over his last couple of fights. He had his I believe it was a four fight winning streak snapped against grant dawson back in 2022 but uh, it was the leon leandro santos fight oh sorry leonardo santos fight where we saw gordon really get back to his winning ways with an emphatic victory over 15 minutes outvoluming and outworking santos to a decision victory then it was followed up with a horrible decision loss to a patty Pimblett fight i should say horrible in terms of the fact that i thought he got robbed you know, a lot of people believe that Gordon did enough to win that matchup, but it seemed like the crowd was favor, or sorry, the judges favored what Pimble was doing more than Gordon, and they awarded him the decision victory. And then that was followed up with a Bobby Green uh, no contest, as Bobby Green uh, accidentally headbutted Jared Gordon en route to finishing him by TKO. Thankfully, the referees and review team was able to notice it, and they were able to call it a no contest in the cage before I got out of it. Uh, but Gordon showcased some solid. Work. You know, crisp boxing combinations does a good job in terms of putting pressure on his opponents. And he also has a grinding grappling game if that's what he feels is required to beat his opponents. At 35 years old, you got to wonder what his durability is like, especially after coming that bad knockout loss or would have been lost to Bobby Green. He's going up against Mark Madsen here who's 39 and kind of surprising to me that he's stepping back in the cage as I really thought he was just trying to make a run to the title and any roadblock would likely end up uh, being what he needs to, to call it quits. But he seems like he still wants to go out there and fight. Although it doesn't seem like he's gone back to the fight ready team to prepare for this matchup. He really entrusted that team with his rise within the UFC which, had him have, uh, which saw him put four straight victories together. Before he ended up getting finished by Grant Dawson in his last matchup, he is an Olympic level or Olympic Greco Roman wrestler, and you can see that on display when he's fighting most of his opponents, looking to take them to the ground and grind them out from that top position. He also has a slick submission game that he's been able to pull off against certain opponents, but more often than not, he's going out there and beating them by decision. It was Grant Dawson's cardio and pace that was too much for Mark Madsen to hold up with last time around, which is why that's which is why Madsen uh, suffered his first. Lost that night. I believe that Gordon's pace, pressure, and ability to dictate the pace will be the difference maker in this matchup. And even though it might be close early, and I expect Madsen to have some grappling success, I think that Gordon will do enough good work with his uh, BJJ background to keep Madsen working, get back to the feet, and then start overwhelming him with a better striking display. This fight is going to be a little bit closer than I believe the odds uh, uh, are suggesting, but I still believe that Gordon should be able to come out there and put together a better body of work over the last two rounds to get his hand raised by decision. All right, next up, we got a lightweight matchup between Nazim Sadikov and Vyacheslav Borshev, which is a fight that is sure to produce fireworks. We got Sadikov, who's riding a nine fight winning streak, his only loss coming in his first professional fight. Last time around, he went out there and survived Terrence McKenney on his back for the majority of the first round and then beat him to the punch in the second round, eventually securing the back position and getting a choke. The fight before that, he was down on both scorecards, or all three scorecards, going into the third round of that fight against Evan Elder. But luckily, a well timed knee opened up a fight ending cut on the forehead of Evan Elder, allowing Sadikov to get his first UFC victory. He trains with the Sarah Longo crew, has some good power striking uh, or a power striking style, but also a decent grappling game as well. But I'm still not completely sold on this fighter here, as I believe the level of competition he was fighting on the regional scene allowed him to look better than he will be able to perform at this level. His wins over Evan Elder, like I said, very close as he was down on the scorecards going into that third round and then the to McKinney fight we know McKinney's gas tank really gives up on him after that fourth minute but this fight against Borshev will definitely tell us what the ceiling is on Sadiqov and if he has what it takes to eventually crack the top 15 of this division. Borshev is coming off of a victory which snapped a two-fight losing streak that he had to Mark T. Casey and Mike Davis but then he Came up against Mahashate and put on a beautiful striking display, butchering Mahashate over a round and a half before he was able to finish him in that second round. I believe he landed three knockdowns in that matchup as well, just showcasing how good of a kickboxer and how dangerous this fighter actually is. The the kryptonite in his game seems to be the takedown defense and grappling, as that's what DK and Davis were successful with. But it seems like he's working on it, and he's very squirmy off of his back, not really throwing up submissions, but also, you know, trying to to disrupt the balance of his opponent so that he can work for a scramble to eventually get back to his feet. His takedown defense and timing is starting to get better as well. And at 31 years old, you got to believe he's getting closer and closer to his prime, and his defensive grappling will only continue. To get better. And I expect that to be the main reason here for him to be able to keep this fight in the striking realm where I expect him to have a decided advantage over Nazim Sadikov. I was kind of surprised to see Borshev as the underdog here. And I was more than happy to take a shot on him as I think a lot of people are just kind of uh they 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 they're a little bit too clouded in terms of Siddikov's talent here, given the fact that he trains with the Saro Longo crew and given the fact that he's on a two fight winning streak in the UFC thus far. I think Borshev is a little bit more tested against better competition and has showcased that he can be disruptive enough in the grappling realm that I don't think Sadiqov will have a good enough advantage running him here in that realm keeping this fight in the striking realm where I expect Borch to have to batter him up and eventually finish him by knockout in the second or third round. That brings us to a flyweight matchup here between Steve Ursig and Alessandro Costa. Starting off on the Ursig side, he had a short notice uh, UFC debut against David Dvorak earlier this year where he pulled off a um, decision victory after dropping the first round. He did a great job in terms of utilizing his kicks to immobilize or slow down David Dvorak and then he had a lot of threatening submission opportunities in the second and third rounds which eventually saw him get his hand raised by decision he's a BJJ black belt but also has a national championship in terms in uh, Muay Thai I believe it is and you can see that on display when he throws his kicks I still have some question marks in regards to how good he actually is considering the fact that he comes from a you know, an Australian fight scene which doesn't really have the most opposition in terms of like stellar and legitimate opposition, especially for these fighters looking to make a name for themselves in the UFC. He seems to be the goods and I was very impressed from what I saw in the Dvorak fight, but I still have some question marks in terms of how far he can take it in this flyweight division. His opponent Alessandro Costa was also a short notice replacement in his UFC debut against Amir Abazi and that's a fight that he didn't do that bad until he got knocked out in the last round of that matchup. He rebounded with a full training camp against Jimmy Flick and managed to knock him out in the opening minute of the second round, showcasing his power striking style and his ability to keep fight ups fights upright where he can stalk his opponents with his leg kicks and his big punches that he throws in combinations. He has a BJJ black belt as well and I've seen him utilize that by taking opponents to the ground and grinding them out from that top position but I think he feels most comfortable when he's able to strike with his opponents utilizing his power and walking them down till he can eventually find a knockout victory. I expect costa to be the better fighter here and I feel like Ursig is the sl- slight favorite in this matchup because of his victory over De- David Dvorak compared to Costa defeating Jimmy Flick. But I think these guys are closer to being an even uh, level fight. And if that's the case, I wouldn't mind taking a small shot on the underdog here in Alessandro Costa at that plus 130 range. I expect Costa to be more aggressive. And I think he can stay out of any type of danger Ursig tries to implement if he looks to take this fight to the ground. That will allow Costa to control the distance in the striking realm. And I believe he can land big enough shots to hurt Ursig. um, quite often and that should allow him to go out there and get his hand raised by decision and that brings us to the prelim headliner which is a fight that I can't say I'm like I can't remember the last time I've been this excited for a non-title strawweight fight we got Tabitha Ricci going up against Lupita Godinez Starting off on the Tabitha Ricci side, she's on a four-fight winning streak since dropping her UFC debut against Minon Firo, which was really not really made for her to win. She came in on short notice, she came up a weight class, and it was obvious that she was at a strength and power disadvantage in that matchup, which is why she ended up losing it by knockout. That was the only loss on her record as she's looked very good ever since then, defeating Maria Oliveira, Poliana Vienna, Jessica Penney and Jillian Robertson over her last four fights and looking dominant while doing so. Usually it's her wrestling and her jiu-jitsu and control time on the mat that ends up getting her hand raised, but in the Robertson fight it seemed like she used it to kind of keep Robertson on her toes as she was able to land some takedowns but immediately work back to her feet and then start getting off on her combination striking, which is clearly improving everything since we've seen her come into the UFC. She's very talented and has a ton of potential, especially considering she's only 28 years old. Her opponent this weekend, Lupita Godinez, is riding a three-fight winning streak and looks to be in the best shape of her career coming into the most important fight of her career. She obviously has a wrestling background, but she's very talented with her hands, as we saw against Elise Reed last time around, where she butchered her on the feet, got her to the ground, and eventually found a dominant submission in the second round of that matchup to get her hand raised. She's very good no matter where fights take her, Uh, but it was very discouraging to see her lose fights against fighters like uh, Jessica Penny, Angela Hill, and even Luana Carolina, but I think that she's really starting to come into her own now, found her confidence, found the training camp and training methods required to compete at a high level. And I think the main difference in this matchup with her and Ricci is going to be Godinez's ability to control where this fight takes place by having the wrestling advantage. I think that Ricci is going to have to take this fight to the ground if she looks to have some success but I think she can be somewhat competitive in the striking realm I saw this line a little bit closer earlier uh, a couple days ago I think it was closer to minus 120 minus 130 for Godinez and now I'm seeing her closer in around that minus 170 range which makes a lot of sense but I believe that this is a close fight and the re- really the only thing separating the two here are is going to be Godinez's wrestling background that should be enough for her to keep this fight upright where she should have the striking background or sorry striking advantage to dictate the pace of this fight but I still believe that I need a better line to take a shot on Godinez I'm going to wait and see if there's going to be some buyback on the Ricci side and we could possibly get Godinez around that minus 130 minus 120 range I might be talking out of my ass here and I think this line might even end up increasing but I'm completely fine with passing it but my prediction is going to be Lupita Godinez and I think she wins this fight by decision by being the more damaging of the two and that brings us to our main card portion of the fight we got some fun fights here uh we got a grappler's delight we got some bangers as well and then obviously we got two title fights first main card fight we got up is a featherweight matchup between diego lopez and pat sabatini We'll start off on the Lopez side here who's uh, coming off of a successful victory over Gavin Tucker last time around where he was able to get a triangle choke victory just over 90 seconds into that matchup. He is a BJJ black belt and he is most known for being the grappling coach of Alexa Grasso. and he was being accredited a lot for getting that submission victory over Valentina Shevchenko due to just... Picking out the the flaw in Shevchenko's spinning kick or spinning back kick game, and that's what allowed Grasso to leap onto the back and eventually get that submission. But Lopez is very dangerous with his own submissions as well. I believe he still needs to do a little bit more work on his striking game, but he has some solid experience. He has 28 fights. He's 28 years old. Uh, But I think that the Joe Anderson-Brito fight from the contender series back in 2021 is all we really need to see in terms of what his ceiling could be. If you're able to get him to the ground and stay out of his submissions, he's very easy to control from that top position and grind him out, landing pitter-patter shots and making it look dominant enough for the referees or, or the the judges uh he is dangerous off of his back so it's no easy task but he's very or he's a little bit too comfortable off of his back allowing opponents to get a lot of control time and then him looking like he's in a defensive position for the majority of the fight again don't get me wrong his jujitsu jitsu is very dangerous so i don't fault him for trying to be as active as he can off of his back and be comfortable off of his back but at this level it's going to be very hard to submit opponents and bring in Mr. Pat Sabatini, who is a high-level BJJ black belt himself. He had a very solid winning streak going on in his UFC uh, career, uh, defeating guys like Jamal Emmers, Tucker Lutz, and TJ Laramie. I believe it was all in all a four fight winning streak he had since coming into the UFC. But then he ran into Damon Jackson, the veteran, who was able to go out there and hit him or knock him down early and eventually finish him by brutal ground and pound. It took a little bit of time for Sabatini to come back, but once he did, he showcased that he didn't miss a step and he knew exactly what he needed to do, and that was to put on a stick. Statement against Lucas Almeida. He went out there and got a 10 8 first round and eventually finished him in the second round with a beautiful arm triangle choke. He's very aggressive and dominant when he can get his wrestling game going, usually going with the body lock to trip his opponents to the mat and then do some good work from on top, using that smothering, crushing top position to get to the positions he needs to either submit his opponents or keep them on the mat so that he can dominate them for even longer. He does a great job in terms of establishing position before looking to work for submissions, so he usually gives up on submissions if he feels he's going to give up a dominant position, which is why he's quite reliable in certain spots, which is why I like him in this spot against Diego Lopez. I saw a lot of people with confidence on Diego Lopez, and I think that's a little bit unwarranted and a little bit having to do with recency bias. He performed a lot better against Mov- Movizar Yves than a lot of people were expecting and then pulled off that flying uh, triangle choke against Gavin Tucker. We know what you know highlight real type finishes and impressive performances like that due to betting lines, but you have to take into consideration the level of competition he's going up against and the stylistic clash that it brings. I believe Sabatini is the better wrestler of the two, which will allow him to dictate the pace and where this fight actually takes. Takes place, And I believe he is a good enough jiu-jitsu artist here to fend off the submission and aggressive submission game of Diego Lopez, allowing Sabatini to control where this fight takes place and to control the positions he's able to dominate from. And that should allow him to grind this fight out over 15 minutes and get his hand raised by decision. At minus 120, sign me up for Pat Sabatini. All right, next up, we got a banger on tap here between Matt Fervola and Benoit Saint-Denis in the lightweight division. Uh, We'll start off on the 11-3-1 Matt Fervola side, who's on a three-fight winning streak and he's finished all three of those opponents in the first round. He's been very impressive as of late as he's really starting to believe in his combinations and his power that he brings to the table. He loves to just slug it out in the pocket with his opponents, which can be a coin flip type of fight, uh, but it's seeming to work out for him as he's kind of pretty much uh, flipped heads every single time out for the last three fights. He has a solid wrestling game of his own if he needs, but it seems like he's comfortable with just banging it out by stalking his opponent and just exchanging them within, with them in the pocket. I believe his durability is still a bit of a question mark. So that's something to keep an eye on as he continues to work up the rankings. But this is definitely the best running he's been in since he's joined the UFC. And this could really... Uh, Give him some confidence required to to go out there and fight the higher levels of opponents, which he's getting this weekend. We saw Benoit Saint Denis earlier this year pick up a big win over Ishmael theme and then go out there and dominate Thiago Moises in September in front of his home crowd in Paris or in Perry, I should say. And now here he is trying to take on Matt Frivola in Frivola's backyard. Saint Denis utilizes a very aggressive wrestling and grappling game looking to just wear on his opponents up against the cage eventually getting that back position and wearing them to the ground and either just posturing up to get down big ground and pound or looking for that rear naked choke to end up getting the tap his striking game is pretty much just him from the southpaw position ripping body kicks to his opponent so that he can either uh pull out a desperation takedown attempt for them or get them uh, softened up enough that he can comfortably close the distance and get his own game going. I think that we'll see uh, Saint-Denis really wear on for Vola in this spot and willingly exchange with him in the pocket where it might not be the best uh, idea for Saint-Denis, but I think that's going to allow for Vola to... Really start to open up with the striking, which will allow Saint Denis to change levels and get this fight to the mat. It's going to be a little bit hard for him early to get this fight to the mat, considering Fivola has a decent wrestling game of his own. But as we saw with the bomb theme fight, with the um, uh, Moises fight, Saint Denis doesn't really need a takedown. He just needs a path to your hips so that he can push you up against the cage and then slowly work to that back position as you start to really feel the weight of him and him just just pushing and wearing on his opponents. I'm expecting him to do the same thing here against Fervola as he wears on him and then eventually takes him to the mat and smashes him from that top position getting a finish by a TKO or submission in the second or third round. All right that brings us to our next strawweight fight here between Jessica Andrade and Mackenzie Dern. We'll start off on the Andrade side here who's on a three-fight losing streak which is just not a good look at this point in time and she's still only 32 years old. However, those losses are some pretty high-level losses. You're talking about being submitted by Aaron Blanchfield earlier this year, also being knocked out by Yan Xiaonan, and then lastly, the uncrowned strawweight champion Tatiana Suarez was able to get Andrade to the mat, and she's able to get the submission finished there as well. But Jessica Andrade started this year off with one of the best performances we've ever seen her have inside the octagon. She landed 232 significant strikes against... Uh, uh lauren murphy in a fight that could have been stopped on numerous occasions but the referee believed that murphy was in there long enough that she could really still defend herself which is why that fight was allowed to go 15 minutes but andrage absolutely butchered her in that fight showcasing what andrage can do at her best she doesn't really evolve or change her game much because she's so reliant on landing her big shots or slamming her opponents to the mat and dominating them from that top position But it's obvious if you have a decided technical advantage in one aspect of the MMA game and you can bring it to that portion of the MMA game you could definitely get the better of Jessica Andrade and in steps Mackenzie Dern who has a very solid jiu-jitsu advantage here over Jessica Andrade but I think that people are kind of being blinded from the Angela Hill fight last time around which is why I think that Mackenzie Dern is a big or a moderate favorite in this matchup. Dern obviously a Brazilian jiu-jitsu ace has struggled in the past to get fights to the mat where she's been able to or try to exploit the best part of her game which is why opponents like Marina Rodriguez and Zhao Nan have been able to defeat her her striking will never catch up to her jiu-jitsu game and it seems like she's kind of accepted that which is why i think in the angela hill fight she just decided to bite down on her mouthpiece and wade into the fire against the better striker angela hill until she was able to get in on the hips of hill drag her to the ground where she could eventually get that submission or she actually she didn't even get a submission victory that night she controlled her for four out of five rounds of that matchup but it was impressive for her, to, or to see her accept the fact that her striking is never going to be up to snuff, and that she won't be able to set up a good enough takedown attempt from distance. So she'll just need to get into the fire and try to get in on the hips from her opponents at that point. But I think she's going to struggle to do that here against Andrade. I don't think that Dern has been hit by anybody um, with nearly as close to the type of power. That Jessica Andrade presents and I think that's going to be the big difference maker here. Even if Durin tries to use what she did against Angela Hill to get in on the inside I think she'll be able to struggle or she will struggle with the power of Andrade whether it's the punching power as she tries to get in on the hips of Andrade or even just the ability to take Andrade down. I think people are being blinded again by the Angela Hill fight and how she was able to get that fight to the ground. But Andrade has or gives you a lot more to worry about than what Angela Hill gives you to worry about when you close the distance on her. So I'm actually going to be taking Andrade for the upset in this spot. I think Andrade can stop the takedowns, and I think Andrade will make. Dern pay every time Dern tries to crash the pocket and I just don't think that Dern is ready for the type of power she's about to face here. I think Andrade will do a good enough job in terms like I said of keeping her off of her and then landing the big strikes and potentially finding a knockout victory in the first or second round. So a plus 165 you know I think that this is a recency bias type of thing where Andrade is on a losing streak and Dern has had a pretty good fight last time around against Angela Hill. All right that brings us to our interim heavyweight title fight which is the home haven event of this ufc 295 card we got sergey pavlovich going up against tom aspinall We'll start off with the Sergey Pavlovich side who I believe is on a five fight winning streak after dropping his UFC debut against Alistair Overeem. Since then he's been able to torch all five of his opponents finishing them in the first round and making it look easy. This guy's boxing combinations are fast, they're crisp and they're powerful and he does a great job in terms of just waiting for the opportunities to explode rather than just bum rushing his opponents and trying to get them out of there. Don't get me wrong he's done it against a couple of those opponents but for the most part it seems like he has a very disembodied boxing game. He doesn't really showcase much of a ground game as he trusts his power so much that he thinks that he just needs that one right shot to put his opponents down to eventually get them out of there. But it was very concerning to see how we dealt with the grappling game of Alistair Overeem in his UFC debut as Overeem is not really a grappling specialist but over him, took him to the ground and did massive damage from on top and laying him out with some brutal elbows at the ending of that first round and getting his hand raised by knockout but I think people are so enthralled by what Pavlovich has been doing over his last several fights which how can you not be considering how dominant he's been looking and how vicious he's been looking too but I think at a certain point that's gotta stop and that guy to stop it might be the one that he's fighting this weekend and Tom Aspinall. Aspinall had his winning streak halted, unfortunately, last year by Curtis Blades in a fight where he injured himself 15 seconds into that fight. It was a very sad spot for him as he was fighting in front of a home crowd in a fight that likely would have earned him a title shot, especially with getting a win over a guy like Curtis Blades. But it was not meant to be that night and he was forced to set out a full year and then coming back just a day shy of a full year since that matchup and dominating Marcin Tybora just over a minute into their matchup. That just showcased what Tom Aspinall is good at, and why he has been so feared in this heavyweight division. There is nobody that moves like him, and as has the type of speed that he has either. He's very crisp, he's explosive, and uh, very you know he has a he has something about him in terms of the way he moves. He's one of the more athletic guys we've ever seen at this division, and his ability to close distance with his speed is why he's been so succe- so successful. He's been showing shades of his grappling game as well against guys like Andre Arlovski and Alexander Volkov. And I don't think we've really seen him showcase his full potential. And this might be the fight where we actually end up seeing it. Now obviously this fight is scheduled for 5 rounds. But knowing how these guys fight, we're likely not even going to see the 2nd or 3rd round of this matchup. But there could be a spot where these guys try to play it out a little bit safely. And we'll see them try to just feint their way into the second round or third round but I really think it's going to be the speed agility and power of Aspinall and precision of Aspinall which will eventually land on Pavlovich or allow him to secure a takedown and do big damage from on top. I think Pavlovich will be hard to take down early but if Aspinall can goad him into a striking uh, fight I think that he'll be able to eventually change levels on Pavlovich as Pavlovich throws and that will allow Aspinall the perfect timing and takedown that he needs to get this fight to the ground where he can dominate from that top position. Obviously the short notice nature of this matchup for Aspinall is a little bit of a concern but this is heavyweight this is not a weight class where you have to worry about cutting weight or staying in shape but I think that Aspinall has stayed in shape enough that he knows that an opportunity is like this could have sprung on him and here it is i think he can make good on it this is a fight between two guys who if you guys have been following me for a while i've been kind of low on and think they're kind of um you know they're 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 not as good as most people make them out to be, but I'm giving both of them their flowers. I think they are skilled. I think they deserve to be at the top of the division at which they are now. And I think it's ultimately going to be Aspinall's physicality and athleticism, which allows him to go out there and just snatch the victory here from Pavlovich. So give me Aspinall, and I can either see it coming from a straight right down the pipe with one of his quick shots or his ability to take this fight to the ground and possibly dominate Pavlovich from that top position give me Aspinall and give me Aspinall by finish I'm going to call it round two and that brings us to our light heavyweight main event which is for the vacant light heavyweight title we got former champion Yuri Prohaska taking on former middleweight champion Alex Poatan Paeda we'll start off on the Yuri Prohaska side so, who has been on the shelf since last year he snatched the title from uh, Glover Teixeira in June of 2022 and was scheduled to defend the title again in December of 2022, but unfortunately suffered a very bad shoulder injury, which forced him to vacate the title. And that's when we saw Magomed Ankalaev take on Jan Blachowicz. That fight ended up being a draw. We saw Jamal Hill take on Glover Teixeira in January for the title. Jamal Hill wins that fight and then is forced to vacate that title after having a very serious injury of his own. And now here we have the vacant title once again and Prohaska rightfully fighting for it. But Prohaska has been very impressive and fun since joining the UFC roster. He started off with a big victory over Volkan Uzdemir, followed that up with a nasty knockout victory over Dominic Reyes, and then a gutsy performance against Glover Teixeira, a fight in which he was behind on the scorecards going into that fifth round until he was able to secure that choke and get the submission victory. It was very impressive, but we know what Prohaska is all about. Prohaska throws wild strikes, a lot of spinning stuff, a lot of flying stuff, but we know he throws it with a ton of power. It'll be interesting to see how he looks to bounce back after such a catastrophic injury that required him to, to really to, to vacate the title. Um, his opponent this weekend is going to be a very dangerous and disciplined striker. And Alex Pereira, who made a uh, successful transition to the light heavyweight division against Jan Blachowicz earlier this year. We saw him lose his middleweight title back in April to Israel Adesanya by knockout. But he was able to bounce back, like I said, at the weight class he probably should have been in this t- entire time. He's a big 185, er and he's still a big 205er. Six foot four with an 80-inch reach. He's going to be bigger than Yuri Prohaska when they face off and step uh, into the cage as well. We know what he brings to the table. Good striking, big power. That check left hook is just nasty as well when he's able to land it with precision like he did against Sean Strickland. And I think that he's going to be able to do that here against the very wild and reckless Yuri Prohaska. You obviously have to wonder if Prohaska has enough power to put out Pereira, as we did see Pereira get put out earlier this year. But I think it's going to be the disciplined, technical, striking approach of Pereira that will get him the victory in this fight. If anybody's going to look to grapple, it will likely be Prohaska, but I don't think he's effective enough in that realm to give Pereira too many troubles. I think we'll see Pereira be able to keep this fight on the feet, stuff a couple of takedowns, and then finally start to throw down with Prohaska when Prohaska decides that that's the only way to beat this guy, and I think that's going to end up opening opening up the victory and the knockout that Pajera should be able to capitalize on. Look for the disciplined, technical, striking approach for Pajera to open up a knockout victory over Yuri Prohaska and allowing Pajera to become the light heavyweight champion. And there you guys go. Breakdowns on all 12 fights for this UFC 295 card. I can't wait for this card. It should be exciting. It should be fun. And we got two title fights on the line as well. What can't you love about that? Just a reminder, if you're looking for Cage Warriors breakdowns as well, I'll have full in-depth written breakdowns for that on the Patreon page, which will start dropping on Tuesday. Make sure you guys check that out. Link for that is in the description below. And if you want to do your own research, make sure you check out the MMA Fighter Archive, where we got over 2,600 fighter profiles for you to be studying from and preparing yourself for the upcoming matchups. Again, I'll be back on Friday to drop the 4-in-1 segment, which has my top three lock-of-the-night predictions or candidates, my top three dog-of-the-night candidates, my free parlay, and the three best prop bets as well. Appreciate you guys. Love you guys. Hit a like and subscribe below as well if you haven't already. Drop a comment as well. Let me know which breakdowns I I messed up and which ones you think that I'm going to be eating my words on. Check it out. Appreciate you guys. Love you guys. Peace. Last thing.